Well, hello, and welcome to the Pastor Talk podcast. We are thrilled to be in conversation again about the real people of faith, a series that we've been doing on many of the notable people of the scriptures, and we've been looking into their lives to see where we might find connections with our own lives. And today we come to a figure in the New Testament who in many ways uh, we couldn't conceive of modern Christianity, of course, even Christianity that reaches out beyond Judaism without thinking of the Apostle Paul. Um, and he has quite a story that we'll be able to look at, but we also recognize just the pivotal place that he plays in the church. And Clint, I think as we turn our attention to a person like Paul, we're going to have a hard time even really scratching the surface of what's here. Yeah, this is arguably, in some ways, Michael, the largest character we've done. And by that, I'm, I mean not just the amount of material that we have in the New Testament, but the scope of his story to begin as an enemy of the church, to then convert to follow Jesus, to serve as a missionary, as a pastor, as an overseer, to argue with some of the leaders of the church, the early church, in the advocacy for Gentiles, just the journey that he takes and what we see of it in Scripture is very, very large. And the scope of his character, as described in the Bible, is really bigger than we can do justice. I I recently finished a book that was something along the lines of 800 pages right. on the Apostle Paul, which is just one of hundreds. Right. And so we will have to very much try to hit high points today. Yeah, and it's important to note here at the start that our understanding of the Apostle Paul uh, from the church's perspective, I mean the big church's perspective, has really grown, changed, morphed throughout the hundreds of years of church history. And so, even to say who is the Apostle Paul is a little bit to miss the point that we've read different parts of his writings more closely at some times in history than others. And so, even our understanding of Paul, I think, has grown over the years. All that said, before we jump into that conversation, I want to just welcome those of you who are joining us on Facebook live as we premiere this today. Uh, we are actually with you, so if you want to uh, ask questions or put in comments during this time, we're uh, very happy to engage. And if you're with us in podcast format, of course, uh, feel free to think of, jot down questions as this conversation progresses. Uh, send us an email, let us know. Uh, we would love to have that conversation uh, sort of on the offline. But all that said, uh, probably we have to start not with Paul, but with Saul. Yeah, so let's just try to give an overview of the general flow of the character Saul slash Paul in the New Testament. We first meet Saul, and we're told that he's a Pharisee. He's present at the stoning of Stephen. The text says that he held the coats, meaning that he he gave permission, implicit or tacit permission, for this stoning to happen when Stephen is killed for testifying to Jesus Christ. We then get a, a few brief stories about Saul pursuing the church, trying to stamp out this, what he considered heresy of Christianity from Judaism. And remember, I think it's helpful to keep in mind that initially 
Christianity falls definitely within the parameters of Judaism. It, it is a, a sect, a group within Judaism. It happens at the temples, the synagogues, all of the first converts, all of the first Christians are Jewish. And so it's very much a Jewish movement. And within Judaism, Paul is one of a group of people who decides it doesn't belong and it needs to be dealt with. And he, he does so even violently, throwing people in prison, he'll later admit. And so when we first meet this character of Saul, it is nowhere near the person we think of, but it is an enemy of the church, one actively working to stomp it out. Yeah, and that is the exact thing that's going to drive him forward towards this pivotal moment where he encounters Christ. And I think one thing that is worth noting here before we turn there is Paul describes himself as being zealous. And we might not really understand what that means if you just gloss over it. We might think, oh, that just means he's passionate. But to be zealous in Judaism brings with it its own connotations. Uh, To be a zealous person means to really be able to do whatever it takes to preserve and to pass on the faith. And so for Saul, the the zealous faith of a Pharisee is to not just counter, not just verbally dispute, but to physically stamp out Christianity. If Paul, or Saul rather, was to continue on on the path that he was on, it would be reasonable that he would be one of the greatest enemies of the church. His uh, intellectual ability, his uh, his ability to passionately pursue one path forward is really unrivaled until Saul gets charges, he gets papers that are going to allow him to secure Christians in Damascus, and he sets out with a team to go essentially round up the Christian church, and it's on that path where he encounters Jesus and his famous conversion moment. Yeah, and you may know that story. He's he's struck down. He hears a voice. He sees a light. He's then blinded, um, something like scales on his eyes. He says, who is it? And he says, the one you persecute, Saul. At this point, or shortly after, he becomes primarily known as Paul. He is assigned to a mentor and a community, and he stays with them for quite a while. One of the things that we sometimes miss in Paul's story is the time frame of it. We we tend to read the books that hit the high points, and we often miss that it was not uncommon for Paul to stay a year, two years, three years in certain locations. And uh, he tells us later that he's a tent maker, a person who works in fabric, and he would have probably supported himself by signing on wherever he lived with uh, people who did that work, and he would have helped them as kind of an, uh, not an apprentice, but essentially as an assistant. And he likely funds his own ministry early on, and as he develops, he begins to learn and see more and more in the faith, and he begins to teach. And, And one of the things that makes Paul uniquely suited to this is that he really is an expert in what we call the Old Testament. He knows the scriptures. As a Pharisee, he's dedicated to the law. He understands the stories. He knows the commandments. And he begins in an ability unique to someone like him to see the connections between the Messiah 
and the promise of the Messiah and the coming and resurrection of Christ. And this knowledge fueled with his experience, his personal experience of Christ on the Damascus Road, it creates in him this unique fusion of abilities as he's able to converse not only with Jews, but increasingly with those outside of Judaism. Clint, I would point people to Acts chapter 13, starting verse 13 here. If you want to get a scriptural snapshot of what you're describing, this is it. Because Paul goes to the synagogue and he speaks to both the Jews and to the God-worshipping Gentiles in that group. And if you read what happens in that passage, Paul does exactly that. He starts with the old, what we call the Old Testament scriptures. The early church would have called them their scriptures. And he starts there and he tells this large story of faith. And if you read this section, you're going to find a lot of the names of people we've already covered in this Real People of Faith series. Because Paul turns and looks and finds in these real people of faith connections to not just God's story for the people of Israel, but really this transforming story for the entire world. And this is where the Christian message really starts to be distinguished from that Jewish message, that that the Gentiles are now folded into this larger family. And as Paul states this case, we begin to see a church leader who's integrating things that no one conceived of as being integrated in this way. Right, and this this sets Paul apart from all of his peers. You have Peter and the other disciples, you have James, who are working in Jerusalem to build a church, and it has not occurred to them that they might go outside the bounds of Judaism. There was a tradition that Gentiles could convert to Judaism, but they did so as kind of second-class citizens. And so when Paul brings this conviction that he now sees that the promise of God, that the desire of God is to go outside of the Israelite family and welcome in these other groups, these Gentiles, these outsiders, this puts him not only outside of the common practice, but it puts him at odds with some of the early teachers. And he gets called on the carpet. He has to go and he meets with the council and he argues with them, or I should say he presents his argument to them that God shows no favoritism. And Peter begins to soften on the idea the council um, is initially suspect both of Paul and his message, but then they begin to warm to this idea. He he begins to win them over with the help of God's Spirit and with the help of their discernment that God is doing something unprecedented, unimaginable, that God wants not only Jews to come to faith in Jesus Christ, but all people. And this probably more than anything, Michael, becomes what Paul is known for. It's not that Paul ever gives up preaching to any group of people, and it's not that he becomes uninterested in the Jews or anyone else. But as we as we encounter Paul in the story, his driving mission is to those that are outside of that initial circle. That's right, Clint. And I would also point out that there's really so many different layers to Paul that we learn from different places. And we've, we've really thus far stuck in the book of Acts, what, what Acts tells us about Paul's life. And 
What's significant about Axe's telling is that really you kind of have book one, book two. You have book one, this early church, Peter, the early disciples, the early, early church. Then you have this middle stuff, uh, Saul converts to Paul. Paul goes through this period of, of really training, learning, reflection. And then uh, through his ministry, this time in Antioch, he gets sent to the council at Jerusalem. It Very quickly, Paul makes it in the book of Acts to having conversation with the highest leadership of this young Christian church. And then the book of Acts shifts gears really quickly, and we start seeing Paul who travels the known world in many different uh trips and and his trips get traced out as the church begins to expand beyond Jerusalem to the entire known world ending up in Rome and it's it's this passage of not leadership because we know that uh, Peter and James continue to lead but we see this focus shift over to Paul in the book of Acts and then it's sort of within that context that we see these other pastoral letters written which i think they as our conversation will progress today even give us some uh, other vantages of Paul's life and ministry yeah and we have told you that we would try to identify when we are reflecting or thinking beyond the scope of what we learn in scripture Paul never really mentions the emotional impact that the violence against Christians in his earlier life had caused for him. But it it must have been something that he carried with him. That 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 regret, that that knowledge that he was wrong, that he was actually standing a, a man who sought his whole life to stand for what God was doing, was actually standing against it. And I've, I've wondered, Michael, if that's not something of the mixture that fueled Paul with his devotion to reach out to the outsiders, to go find the lost, to go and seek out wherever they were and as far as they were, those people who might come to Christ and have a saving knowledge of him. Paul is a remarkably tenacious character. He He's a fierce preacher. He backs down from no one. He endures pain and suffering because of what he does, and yet there's no quit in him. Yeah, I, I think that one way to summarize what I hear you reflecting on there, Clint, is that Paul embodies what we often think of opposites. He demands and emphasizes humility to the nth degree. If you read the book of Philippians, you cannot walk away from Paul's writings without recognizing that we are all sinners in need of grace and that that posture requires that we must be people who seek humility in the world. And that is not oppositional in Paul to perseverance, to endurance, to courage, to getting beaten down and stoned and bit by snakes and shipwrecked and you get back up and you keep moving. Sometimes I think we we sloppily think that humility is some version of weakness. That is not true in Paul at all. Paul calls Christians to a distinct knowledge of the fact that we need Christ for salvation and yet 
Paul lives his entire life with this this just expressed belief. I, I mean, his actions reflect his belief that we are called to do everything we can to advance the gospel wherever we are. Yeah, so in the 11th chapter of 2 Corinthians, let me just read some of this list for you. Paul is talking about some of his hardships. I have far more imprisonments, countless floggings, often near death. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked for a night and a day. I was adrift on sea on frequent journeys, danger from rivers, bandits, danger from my own people, from the Gentiles, danger in the city, in the wilderness, at sea, from false brothers, sisters, and toil hardships, many sleepless nights, hungry and thirsty, often without food, cold and naked. That is not the resume of someone who is overly proud of themselves. That That is... That is a list given by a man who cannot be stopped, who endures. I th- I think, and I, I can't, maybe you know the details of it, Michael, but there is one story in which Paul is, is grabbed and he's stoned and they think he's dead and they take him outside of the city. And it says the next day he got up and went back into the city to preach. I I can't help but see in Paul a man who just has an iron will to preach the gospel and and he will let nothing keep him from doing it now there are other takes on paul and we'll talk about some of them but when i when i read that list and when i see those stories what i see is a man so convicted that he will let nothing stand in his way and and knows he does so at great personal risk. Very much so. He brings not just a conviction, though. He's not just a person who's passionate. We all know someone who's passionate. But when you dig a little bit deeper, you find that there's not an incredible amount of depth to that passion. I, I, I just mean maybe they can't plumb the depths of the intellect of the things beneath the surface. Th- this man is both able to bring an unending amount of energy and courage and passion to the faith, but he understands it at a level that that hardly anyone, if no one, would, would have been able to do at the same time. He, he brings a conviction, a learning, just a sheer amount of knowledge of the biblical text. When Paul shows up and he makes an argument for Christianity, he's going to be heard. Uh, there's really no other way. He's well-spoken. He knows what he's talking about. And quite frankly, he's not going to let you go until you listen. Yeah. And in some ways, he seems like the least likely Christian evangelist. And in other ways, he seems like the perfect choice. And and as we've said in this podcast many times, Michael, the, the story of these characters are only reflection of the story of God. And only God, I think, looks at a man who is persecuting the church and says, that's the guy. I'm going to make him the most famous missionary of the life of the early church, maybe the most famous missionary of the entire Christian church. That's the guy I want, the the very guy that's trying to eradicate this new evolution of the faith. And 
you know, Paul is just, he's unstoppable. And I think no disrespect to James and Peter and those that were living out their faith in other ways and leading in some vitally important ways for the church's life. I don't know if Christianity gets out of the first or second century without the tenacity, without the the iron-mindedness of Paul, without his intellect, without his theology. I, I'm not sure. I think it takes a man like that. And, and there are criticisms of Paul, and we can talk about them in a moment, but I think it takes someone like that to move a cause far enough along that it survives. And I, it's very difficult to see how God would have managed to maintain and grow the church aside from a person like Paul and his story. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting that we have all of these letters written to churches. They, along with Acts, help inform us as to the really apostolic church leadership aspect of Paul's life. He was very active in the life of congregations. But we have this really important segment at the end of Acts, and you need to know, it's not surprising really, that Paul really creates enemies in the Jewish community. Of course, he was a Pharisee, he was in the ranks, he was persecuting Christians, and then when Paul does that 180, and he becomes such a powerful voice and force for the early Christian church, he creates enemies in the Jewish religion in in some of the higher echelons of leadership, and they plot to kill Paul. And I think the latter part of Paul's life is fascinating, Clint, because we see Paul shifting from sort of this itinerant missionary work to actually engaging with some of Rome's higher political leadership. He he, uh, abruptly shifts into this sort of period of being imprisoned, and he appeals to Caesar, so that means that they're taking him all the way to Rome so that he can receive a trial at the, at the highest level of the Roman government. And as he goes, Paul is literally evangelizing the entire political structure the whole way that he can go. And, and he's finding a hearing in these places. And I think one of the things that that's always spoken to me is Paul is a resourceful individual. And, and he's able to speak to whatever group he's in. If you're Jewish, he's going to turn to the Old Testament scriptures. If you're a Gentile, he's going to point to the unknown gods in the room and he's going to say, hey, I want to talk to you about that unknown God. I, I believe that I know who he is. He's Jesus Christ. If, you're, if he's in the room with a Roman governor or if he's in the room with a local king, Paul's going to have thought through, how is the gospel relevant to you, and how can I proclaim it in a compelling way? And I think that, for me, has always uh, been a source of inspiration for me, uh, because it's not different gospels. Paul's not sort of speaking to differing good news. It's always rooted in this central conviction, this belief, this encounter that Paul has had, and yet he's able to find ways to speak it in a way that translates to the life of the person that he's with. And, you know, that really feels to me like an invitation for all of us as Christians. Yeah, it's fascinating to think that Paul moves beyond a niche. In, in other words, pastors, missionaries generally have a type of people they work with, 
a, a, a sort of archetype of people who come to their church. Maybe a missionary says, I work with these indigenous people or this tribe or that. Paul works with everybody. If he's on the road and meets a beggar, he's preaching to them. When he's standing before Felix, the governor, he's preaching to Felix. He, when he's in the synagogue, he's preaching to the Jews. When he's out in the community, he's preaching to the Gentiles. Whoever Paul meets, he sees as an opportunity to introduce them to the truth he understands in Jesus Christ and, and really um, has a universal vision for that gospel. And again, th- that's a very new development in the faith, and one that becomes foundational in the faith. In fact, unfortunately, we see in the early church the the move actually away from Judaism and Jewish people to almost exclusively Gentile within a, a couple of generations. But but Paul didn't intend that. Paul had this this incredibly wide vision for all people to come to Jesus Christ. And because he did, he, he has really no, I I think it would be very hard to look at Paul and say that he practices any kind of favoritism or targeting. If, if you're in front of him, you're going to hear about Jesus. That's just who he is. Yeah. You know, Clint, Rochelle and I were talking about a autobiography she had read the other day. And one of the things she remarked on is people who, have all of these connections and push movements forward in these powerful ways. They're often hard to contain because they're writing so many things and they're engaging in so many different formats. I think Paul's a really classic example of that. We could not possibly even scratch an iota of the surface for all of the books that have been written and all of the sermons that have been preached and all of the different perspectives. And I think that in many ways, Paul has served as a mirror to the person looking at him. I think if you're a pastor, Paul sounds a lot like a pastor when he's dealing with the people of a church. When you're a missionary, Paul's doing missionary work. It's easy to connect with him. When you are a woman, you're going to find some things that are going to be challenging, if not outright uh, repulsive in Paul. And I think maybe that's a helpful way to frame it is there's lots of different versions, perspectives on Paul, and maybe each one of uh, them has something to teach us about him. Yeah, and while I think the Christian history records Paul as an evangelist or what we might call a missionary, I think we should not underestimate Paul's role in the history of the faith as a theologian. Um particularly in the book of Romans, but not exclusively, Paul sets the groundwork for really what becomes what we would call Presbyterian or Reformed theology. Through Augustine and Luther and Calvin, those, the ideas that grow to shape our corner of the faith are all deeply rooted and all concretely Uh, anchored in the book of Romans, the idea of providence, the idea of sovereignty, the idea of grace, the idea of faith, the idea of works, all of those things that we kind of take for granted. Paul's doing that as first-generation theology. Paul's not arguing about somebody else's view like we have ever since his. Paul is creating 
a theological voice for the church. And, it, and for us, it's gone a particular way. But for every branch of the church, Paul has served as the starting point. We may not agree with one another as to where we've taken it, but we would agree that it all begins with much of his writing. And, and, and that's not to give him more credit than he deserves. I, I just think it has to be said that I, the theological life of the church is impossible to imagine without books like Romans and, and other moments where Paul turns his mind to those things. Yeah, and we couldn't, I don't think, end a conversation about Paul as theologian without really talking about one of the core concerns that Paul has, and it's really reflected right in the core of Romans here. Paul's theological concern is that the church recognize that Gentiles have been grafted into the good news of God, but that doesn't foreclose on the Jewish people's covenant that God graciously gave to them. And just take a moment to reflect on how huge of a problem that is when you sit in Paul's position. You have this entire thing, we know it as the Old Testament, but Paul knew it as the scriptures. You have this entire corpus of writings of those people whose lives we've already talked about in this series who are to point us to the good news of God. And Paul looks at that and says that God made promises to the Jews, that God covenanted himself, that he would be faithful even when the Jews were not. And so now Paul stands at this this turning point in history where we see because of the work of the Holy Spirit that these Gentiles are being brought into the church because of Jesus Christ, because of his sacrifice, because of God's grace and love to them. And Paul says, what do I do with these two realities? The covenant that God made to these people and to the grace and love and inclusion that God is showing to these Gentiles. And what you see in Romans is Paul wants to say God is faithful to his covenant and God is also bigger than that covenant and his ability to engraft these Gentiles and that ultimately God wants the all to be brought into the story. What Paul does theologically is to resolve a conflict that I don't know of any other New Testament writer who's either concerned with it or who's able to speak to it in such a compelling way. And it's because of Paul's theological sort of uh, unified, passionate vision, his theological work, that we have all of this church history that follows. I think you, you say it well, Clint. It's not just the Reformed tradi- tradition that draws from Paul. There are other branches of the church family that, that draw from Paul as well. So I think really the depth of Paul has to be honored as we consider him as a father of the church. Yeah, and as a leader, keep in mind that one of the reasons Paul does that, one of the driving um, forces of Paul trying to clarify theology and and make doctrine accessible is and this is the part I think that's hard for us to imagine there there's a a chorus of voices who are claiming things about Jesus that doesn't happen as as if Paul went into a library and sat down and said I okay I need I need to make this clear for the church He's reacting to people who are teaching different things that you that are teaching. Well, Jesus is great, but you also need to be circumcised, and you need to keep the diet laws, and and you need to keep Sabbath laws. And as Paul interacts and argues, theology is a living 
process. It's not just a mental exercise. It it creates itself under Paul's direction in the life of real Christians, in the life of churches who have people showing up and saying, no, Paul's wrong about that. It's this way, not that way. And as Paul argues and as he prays and as he encourages and as he rebukes and corrects, the way that we think about the faith begins to take shape. And and as you say, Michael, not just us, but the whole breadth of Christianity. To my knowledge, there is no group of Christians that says, we don't read the Paul parts of the New Testament. Everybody is going to deal with Paul if you follow Jesus Christ and read the Scripture. Yeah, there's no being Christian without, in some way, having to deal with Paul and his effect he's left on the church. And I think a large part of that is not just the depth of theology. I, I'll, I've had professors for whom Paul is a theologian front and center, and that's very much a mirror of their own experience and faith. I think that you are going to miss Paul if you don't recognize Paul's also a pastor, and that comes out in spades the moment you turn to the book of Corinthians, first and second, because when you see Paul dealing with real people's issues— you see that he's not trapped in words. It's not just vocabulary list. It's not just trying to tease out nuanced little pieces, though there is nuance in his pastoral work. Paul's also going to make clear, compelling, and really um, very uh, uh, sharp critiques of conduct in the church. So much to say, you know, hey, this man has sinned in such a way you need to kick him out. You need to dispel him from the church because of that action. That is the work of a pastor as well as a theologian. Yeah, I think to your point earlier as we started, Paul has this breadth of abilities. He's a deep thinker. He's a passionate preacher. There are times, say, in the book of Philippians, he is deeply poetic. He is profoundly wise. He is direct and blunt. He can be argumentative. He can be nasty. And that whole breadth of traits, that whole range of his character works its way in to his writing and therefore into our faith and into the way that we think, the way we understand the gospel. Um, Without Paul's work, we would inherit a very very different understanding, and that that God entrusts so much of the direction of where the church will go to ultimately Paul's thoughtfulness and Paul's parsing out of ideas as he also lives out the faith is remarkable testament. And now, Paul has some rough edges, and, and we'll move into those. We've been very pro-Paul <laughs> so far. And I think for good reason. I I have friends, I've had professors who are not fans of Paul, and there are some things that maybe we can look to and say, yeah, that's rough, but I don't think you can underestimate his contribution, Michael. I don't think you can minimize what Paul has given to those of us who come after him, hoping to, to be faithful to Jesus. I, I agree completely, Clint. There's no major Christian theologian or pastor in the history of Christianity that has not had to make an appeal to Paul or preach from Paul or wrestle with what Paul 
has laid the framework for our faith. There's just no way around that. Now, that being said, Paul's a person. In fact, in his writings, there's times where he says things like, now, this is my opinion. I think you should do this. And lots of people struggle with what we should do with that when it's in the Holy Scriptures. But I, I do think Paul is a human living in a time and in a place responding to the concerns of that moment. And one of the uh, people or groups that are going to lift out some challenging texts on Paul are, are going to be women. There are feminist theologians who are going to have very harsh language for some of Paul's writings. And um, quite frankly, it's been a source of division in church history for, for hundreds of years. Yeah, Paul says some tough things about the differences between men and women, the hierarchy between men and women. Those are things that are in the Scripture, and we have to continue to process what they mean and what they don't mean and what they call us to do and be and believe. And uh, they are hard to get around. If, if the in feminism, for instance, if the major thrust of your theology is to pursue equality and fairness for women, there are going to be moments where it's going to feel like Paul is not helping with that cause. In fact, Paul is directly in the way of it. Now, some of that is not fair to put on Paul's shoulders, because there's 2,000 years of what people have done with those writings as well. But yes, Paul is going to have moments where we wish that he would have said uh, softer, kinder, more uh, things of more equality pertaining to the differences between men and women. Um, and that just is what it is. He's He's not writing in 21st century America. And it, that's very clear as you read his writing. Yeah, there's going to be things about uh, head coverings, which is a component of worship. There's talk about gossip and some expectations about marriage. Uh, there's this language about uh, how in the ordered uh, creation, this is very much a, a Jewish conception of creation, that that the order in which God did things is a reflection of how that should look in our family relationships. And, you know, lots of ink has been spilled on this, Clint. You could find commentaries and books on uh, every uh, stage of this spectrum, both for and against and everywhere in between. But I think what's important to note here is that Paul's writings make that kind of breadth of conversation possible. In other words, there are people who are are pro-Paul and anti-Paul, who are both going to have real things to talk about in Paul's writings. And, and that, I think, points us to a, a part of Paul's life and ministry that is essential to understand. And th that is, I really believe that Paul's gospel is big enough for the Spirit of God to transform as time has gone on. The church has come back to this and over and over and over, over thousands of years and said, whoa, we didn't realize that was in there. I think, you know, certainly as Reformed people, we would point to Luther as someone who turns to Paul's writing and says, wow, grace, salvation by grace, that it, we can't focus on the works, that we have to recognize this was God's gift to us. That was in Paul's writings all along, but we rediscovered it, or maybe we discovered it for the first time. And I do think that as we continue along the history of uh, certainly the church, scholarship, 
theology. I think we find in Paul passages like where um, we there is neither slave nor free, male nor female. We understand that what Paul meant about the hierarchy of marriage is that we are supposed to reflect the self-giving of even God's relationship in the Trinity. And if we are going to reflect that, it doesn't look like lording over one another. It looks like true partnership. Now, did Paul mean that specifically? Probably not. But as we look back onto his writings, I think there is a lot of breadth that the Spirit of God can work within. Yeah, and I don't want to get on thin ice, Michael, so you you keep me from it. But we have liked the idea that the Bible says one thing about things and, and speaks with one voice about issues. And so as we have seen those things that Paul says that clearly cast a negative light on feminist positions or or females in general, we have, I think, tended to miss the other things Paul has said, where he calls women co-workers in the gospel, where he says, she labored beside me, when he tells the church, listen to her. And there are these moments where Paul says different things, or we hear different voices in Paul. And and I think that matters because most of us, as we live out our faith, have places where we we clearly have ideas of, of a set way of thinking, and then we have other ideas that we sort of move in and out of. And I think if we allow Paul that freedom, it softens. Now, Paul is never going to be called feminist. No. Paul is never going to be called, you know, pro-equality. But that's not the whole story of Paul, and I think that matters because if we remember that there are moments Paul says other things, it helps us to see the context, and I think it helps us to soften some of the rough edges of those other scriptures. We could say the same thing, another area Paul's been criticized like much of the New Testament, Paul acknowledges slavery without ever denouncing it. Paul never says we should not have slaves. Now, the slavery of the New Testament and the slavery of our American history is slightly different, but we wish that there were passages where Paul just said nobody should have oppressive control over another person's life. That would be super helpful as we try to unpack our own stuff and our own history, our our own um, conditions and, and prejudices of our world. But he didn't. He lived within a time where that was accepted, it was common, and maybe it didn't even occur to him that such a thing could be called into question. But it would be nice. Now, having said that, again, there are other moments where Paul calls slave masters to grace and compassion, where he calls slaves to pride and to leadership. And I think we do a disservice when we want to paint Paul with a single brush or a single color. We miss the complexity. We miss the nuance. And I think we miss the balance, though it's not always 50-50. In fact, it's not 50-50 often. But it is there, and I think it matters. It really strikes me at this moment in the conversation, Clint, that if you're really tracking with us, there's a moment where we shifted from talking about Paul the person 
to really how we read scripture. And that's how significant Paul is. Mm -hmm. When you look at Paul's contribution to the New Testament, it was literally Paul's writings used by American slave owners to justify owning slaves. It was Paul's writings used by opposing Christians in the United States to justify the abolition of slavery. Once you realize the significance of Paul's writings, you recognize that we've shifted beyond just this person to someone who God used to really create the New Testament scriptures at a substantive level. We're, we're, we're now talking almost beyond that person. And I do think that maybe makes it a little harder to personalize this person. Like the guy who wrote these things made tents. The, the idea that he walked places and got caught in shipwrecks and that he preferred some food over other. And, you know, this person is so significant in not just the thought, but the leadership of the advancing church that I do think it is healthy to pause and say that at his core, Paul was a human, a beloved child of God. He got stuff right. He even was able to be humble enough at times to say, this is my opinion. It may not be right. And if we can hold Paul loosely, we can see what he's contributed to the advancement of Christianity. And we can also recognize that we should never claim one thing from Paul as absolute truth uh, from the sense of recognizing we might later learn that there's more gospel in his writing than we even recognized. Yeah, I, th I think, again, it is very to to God's credit, to the Scripture's credit, and to Paul's credit, it is very hard to pigeonhole Paul. And that gives us the opportunity to have to think for ourselves. And, and that creates opportunities to get it wrong. You know, some of the most legalistic people that I've ever met appeal to Paul, yeah. who was dismantling the law in favor of grace, as Presbyterians would read it. And yet... They see in Paul a rule giver, yep. a, a lawmaker, a, a Pharisee who just wears the label Christian on the other side and becomes a Christian Pharisee. That, I think, is not fair to Paul. I have uh, friends and, and people that I've encountered who experience Paul as deeply arrogant mm -hmm. because he's confident because he understands leadership and he understands it's his role that he bears responsibility for these fledgling communities and he attacks those who threaten them. And yet, this is a man who says of all the apostles, I am least. I consider myself last. Moments of deep humility, moments of incredible insight. Um, I, I think we, we fail we fail to grasp Paul and his importance when we try to, to paint him as a one-dimensional character. The, the Scripture will not allow us to do that. If we read the totality of Paul's writing, and if we try to look back on who he was as a person and person of faith, we will be unable to come up with a flat, easy-to-understand character, nor, nor should we. No, and... I would venture the guess that if you've been around the church any period of time, there's some 
of your favorite Bible verses that are exact Pauline statements. I, Paul gives us some of the best tellings of the gospel in all of the scriptures. Uh, and I, I think as we walk away from this conversation, some may feel like this was a glowing review of Paul. Um, there's going to be others who would listen and say, yeah, I, I don't think I have quite as pro of a Paul reading as you guys do. Uh, I've heard some who read those humility passages, Clint, and say, yeah, that's the thing an arrogant guy would do. He'd use humility as a tool to force people to do what he wants them to do. And I think, friends, as we come to a person like Paul, we need to have the same discipline that we've applied to other uh, real people of faith and recognize that Paul always wanted, I believe, for his uh, writings for his leadership to point others to Christ. In fact, he says, uh, follow me as I follow Christ. I, I think for him, it was always about uh, helping lead on towards the, Jesus Christ, Lord of all creation. And to whatever extent is possible, I think we should look for how does Paul's life, how do his writings, how does what he has left us point us to the current living spirit of Christ who's alive and at work in the world. And to whatever extent his writings, his life, his ministry, his travels, his leadership, to whatever extent they point us to the present living one, then Paul is a giant of the Christian faith. Yeah, and I, I guess to answer the criticisms of Paul, I consider myself fairly pro-Paul, and while I acknowledge there are moments I wish he had lived beyond his time, I would also ask of those who criticize him harshly, how many scars do you bear from imprisonments and beatings and stonings and floggings? Because this guy did it day after day after day, and he got up, and those wounds tore at him and stuck to his cloak, and he marched back to preach again. And did he get it all right? No. But I think, Michael, you got to give a guy like that some credit, because without that toughness, without that, that willingness to suffer on behalf of the cause, we don't come to understand much of the faith that we do because of who Paul was. I don't think this is an overstatement, Clint, correct me if I'm wrong. There's no Christian post-100 AD that does not stand on the shoulders of Paul. Now, you might not always like the view, <laughs> and you might wish that the shoulders went in another direction, but we stand on Paul's shoulders. He, he is a forebear of the Christian faith. And for all it's good and for it's, all it's bad, I, I think I, I'm neither pro or against Paul. I think Paul is essential and a linchpin. And I think if we don't listen carefully to what Paul has to say, we're going to miss the gospel, as, as, especially, Clint, the expansiveness of the gospel. Because Paul, from my view, he really stands at that break point where the church just suddenly breaks open the walls and the whole world is now suddenly the subject of God's love. It, that is in the Old Testament. That is in some ways intrinsic to the Jewish faith. 
but not in the way that we perceive it in the middle of Acts and beyond. Paul really is that voice, and, and it's because of Paul that I get to be in a church with a whole bunch of other Gentiles trying to follow Jesus Christ. Yeah, and I don't want to stretch our time too far, Michael, but there's a, there is, I think, often missed a beautiful fluidity in Paul who can say of some of the great battles of the early church, eh, if you want to do it on that day, go ahead, and if you want to do it on that day, go ahead. If you want to eat the meat, eat the meat or don't eat the meat, but be good to each other while you're doing it. He can say absolutely. He can say vehemently. He can say aggressively. You do not need to be circumcised. That is a step back. You are going back and denying the covenant of Jesus Christ and the grace that God has given you through his mercy if you allow yourself to be circumcised. And then in another book mentioned, uh, Timothy came with me. I had him circumcised so it didn't ruffle the feathers of all the people we were going to be with. There it, it it is just not possible to make Paul one thing. He is a man with tremendous gifts and talents trying to navigate not only the gospel as he understands it, but the formation of that gospel into living communities of Jesus Christ. And um, I, I think that despite his failings, he is the paradigm by which the rest of us come to understand much of what we understand about what it means to be faithful as as pastors, as theologians, as missionaries, as Christians. And I, I, I can't imagine the faith without him. Yeah, we haven't really done this for other characters, so maybe it's not the right question. But I wonder, Clint, just very briefly, you know, if someone listened to this conversation and said, yeah, this guy sounds really interesting – you know, where would you maybe recommend someone pick up a book or an author? Who would be a good place to turn to to learn more about Paul? Yeah, I'd probably start with the book of Acts. If you haven't done that, I would go through the book of Acts. It, it may be helpful. There are some online resources. There are even some printed resources that will help you um, connect the rest of Paul's writings with the journeys and the descriptions of the stories in Acts, that can be helpful. When he's in Corinth, then you'll read Corinthians. When he's in Galatia, read Galatians. That can be helpful. Other than that, I had a New Testament professor, Marty Swords, who wrote a pretty good short book on Paul. There's a wonderful book by N.T. Wright, but I, I, my fear is that without some seminary stuff, people are going to find it um, like drinking from a fire hose. It's it's going to have lots of scholarly stuff in it. Yeah, I'd recommend if you are interested in N.T. Wright, who's a, a real pillar in uh, very contemporary Pauline theology, I would look at, um, it's called the New Testament Commentary for Everyone, and look at the book of Romans. Um, N.T. Wright wrote that, but he wrote it for essentially anyone. Uh, you don't need to have a theology background to really read that. And I, I think it's a good summary of his work on Paul. And so you get a little bit of a background on Romans, which is a central Pauline text, and you also get a sense of N.T. Wright's contributions. As applies to all things, be careful online. There's just yeah. so much stuff out there that's hard to sort through. If, you, if you're interested, if you want to follow up, come and talk to us. We've got books. We can point you in a good direction. I, I think there's just so much out there online that it would be hard if you didn't know what it represented, who wrote it, why they wrote it. You could get 
you could get misdirected pretty quickly. You know what else we should do? If you've enjoyed this conversation, you should share it to the wide internet so that other people can hear it. <laughs> no, we're glad that you've been here. Thank you. Uh, we hope that you found something helpful in the conversation. Let us know. We'd love to engage in conversation with you if you have thoughts, questions, ideas. Uh, we look forward to our next conversation, which will premiere right here, wherever you're listening, uh, next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central Standard Time. Thanks so much for being with us, everyone. Thank you all.